Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. We're going to be introducing a new series on the podcast today about reading the Bible, commonly misunderstood verses, and how to interpret the Bible with a return guest, Clark Bates. Stay tuned. My guest today has been on the show before, and uh, we did an episode about misunderstood Bible verses. And Clark, I don't know if you know this, but it was actually one of my most popular episodes ever. So yeah, it's uh, definitely in the top three or four. So um, let me just let the the listeners know a little bit about you, and we'll get right into our continuation of our discussion before. So Clark has a Master's of Divinity degree in Pastoral Studies from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. And he's uh, currently studying for a second master's degree in theology at Concordia Seminary, and then intends on pursuing his PhD immediately after that. So he blogs at a website called exegesus.com, and that's E-X-E-Jesus, spelled like the Lord, J-E-S-U-S.com. <laughs> and he describes his website as a seminary for the saint and skeptic alike. And so we recorded this past episode called five, The Five Most Misunderstood Bible Verses. And like I said, <clears throat> had a lot of listens and uh, was really popular. Got a lot of good feedback on it just with people messaging and texting and things. So Clark and I have been talking about doing just a series even, making this kind of a regular thing um, from time to time, starting with, depending on how much we get through today, making this a (laughs) one, two, or three-part series as we continue talking about misunderstood uh, Bible verses, because there are a lot of them. So, 
Clark, before we get into uh, all of that, I want to ask you about something, an experience that you just had recently where you traveled to Spain and walked on a pilgrimage. So why don't you tell us um, what that was all about? And then you kind of came out with some really profound insights, even as they relate to apologetics, which I never would have thought of uh, if (laughs) I, you know, but you walking this pilgrimage, uh, some things were illuminated to you. So tell us about that. Yeah. um, Well, yeah, for anybody listening that may not know what this is, I'll give just a quick um, review of what it is. So the pilgrimage I walked, is called the Camino de Santiago. Um, Anybody that may have seen the Martin Sheen movie called The Way has uh, probably seen a little bit about that. It's that and that movie is about this pilgrimage. However, in that movie, they're taking a route from France across the northern uh, uh, part of Spain. And uh, in the pilgrimage that I took began actually in the city of Porto in Portugal. Uh, so this is there's many routes to that are on this pilgrimage, and this is the one I took. And so I walked um, right about 150 miles from Porto all the way to the city of Santiago. Spain. The reason this is a, um, a pilgrimage, it's a Christian pilgrimage that goes back to the 9th century, um, right around 821 AD, I believe. And Santiago is named after St. James. That's what it means. Uh, and so Santiago, Spain uh, is where the remains of the Apostle James, the brother of John, are supposed to be. There's a cathedral there, a huge cathedral. And underneath where they perform the Mass is a sepulcher, which you can go down and you can see the the ossuary, the box that they contain that are supposed to contain these bones. Um, so it became a Christian pilgrimage after this body was supposedly discovered, and for almost let's say about twelve hundred years, people have been walking this. Um, and it's been for many reasons. The reason that it exists is that church history uh, and tradition teach that this uh, apostle, that James, went to Portugal and Spain, primarily Spain, um, landing in the city of Padrone to preach the gospel. This was right after Jesus died, right about seven years after Jesus died. And so uh, he returned to Jerusalem, as we read in Acts, right about AD 44 or so, and was put to death. Hmm. His disciples from Spain went with him, and they brought his body back, and according to tradition, buried him in Santiago, where a church was. And so over the years, it's been built up, but that's, that's why people come here. Uh, I felt like it would be a good time of reflection, especially since you walk <laughs> everywhere, and it's a it's a challenge. But it's also a, a part of the region I've never visited, and it has a very very rich history and a very rich uh, Christian history. How many um, miles is that again that you walked? One hundred and fifty. Wow. So yeah, it took about twelve to thir- uh, about twelve days, um, and so you know it. And you some some pilgrimages, some routes are a lot longer than that. Uh, but that was the amount of time that I had available was about two weeks. And so, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was something I met people from all over the world, and not very many of them were believers, actually. Hmm. So a lot of people do this just for exercise (laughs) and for fun. (laughs) But um, I met a few believers, but it also gave me the opportunity as a Christian to be um, part of a community where I would be the minority. And we were all, Hmm. you know, very friendly with each other. It was really nice. Um, So so as you're you're doing this this pilgrimage, um, what what were some of the insights that you reflected on after it was over, even as it was going on, as relates to even uh, biblical things and apologetics. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. I didn't. I was. It's funny that you said it because I wasn't planning on creating any kind of apologetic insight <laughs> right, when, I, right. when I left. Um, you know, it was more of like a kind of a spiritual uh, sabbatical. And uh, as I was walking, and one of the things that I, th- I shared with you when we talk, and I've shared on a video of it that I made, uh, was that I got injured right away. 
And so my feet were very hurt, but I continued to walk and, uh, it got worse <laughs> before it got better, but, um, it slowed me down considerably. And one of the things that you start to realize as you're walking literally from the time you wake up to the time you set down, uh, for the night is how long a day is mm. the hours in a day, uh, just be, stretch out almost, they almost seem like it's a, it's an entire week at a time. If that can help uh, because you don't have, you know, you have no access to your phone. Really. You're not driving anywhere. Um, you're not distracted. Your life exists in getting up, walking, eating, sleeping, getting up, walking, eating, sleeping. That's mm-hmm. all you do. Um, so everything else doesn't matter. And everybody around you is doing the same thing. So you kind of become this family of people with all of this time in your hands. And in the two weeks, the biggest one of the biggest insights that I came away with is in that two-week period, I knew the people that I walked with regularly better than I probably know most people I've known I've met for years in this country. And none wow. of them were from America. Wow. Uh, most of them were from Germany. Um, some were from Australia, uh, South Africa, uh, Denmark, and just all over. And in Ireland, and uh, and one of the things that happens in this this relationship is that because you have all this time and you're always around each other, you talk about everything. It's not just um, you get past that on the first two or three hours, and then you're left with all this time. Wow. So you start to learn about them. I, I learned about their family lives. They learned about mine, about why they were walking, what their spiritual life was like, what they believed about things like death and purpose, and you know, and you know, who meant the most to them in their life and all these different things that you just, you just discuss. It just sort of comes up naturally. And what dawned on me as I was walking was that this is the life that Jesus and the apostles had. Yeah. You know, they walked everywhere together. And in two weeks, if I could know these people as well as I did in only two weeks and compound that in three years, like the disciples would have with Jesus, they had three full years mm-hmm. of this. They, we, I often used to think, wow, that's not a lot of time. I mean, how much could you really know in three years? But in that environment, they would have known him better than I probably know my family. Yeah. And, and that's just, it was such a profound thing to consider that three years was a lifetime for them mm. and how much they could have poured into each other and he would have poured into them in that amount of time. Uh, you couldn't possibly suggest that they didn't know Jesus well enough mm. when they wrote. Is that, just, a, is that a skeptical claim? I, I hear things like that, like, you know— his ministry was so short or they really didn't, they weren't around him really long, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of suggestions. I wouldn't say it's ever been a direct claim, but it seems to be an underlying just assumption. Mm. And it, and it's kind of been mine too, you know, in some ways that, that it wasn't a long time. And that's because, you know, I'll fault myself that I was, you know, bringing my modern idea of time <laughs> and, and my life and putting it back in mm. theirs and having this experience enabled me to see the world from a completely different view. Wow. Uh, and you know, it was life changing. I, I think everybody should try it, but, um, that yeah, that was a cool. big one that came away was just how much the disciples really would have known Jesus in three years time. And it's profound and each other, like when they, when they, when they went off to do this ministry, I can't imagine what it was like for them. These, these 11 men who had been with each other so closely and then having to separate and eventually some dying and just what that would, it would have been hard, as hard as losing your closest family member. Yeah. Well, that, that is profound and interesting, and um, I'm so glad that you got to share that because uh, you had written a blog post about this, which I thought was just fascinating, the, the insights that you had. And it's really an interesting thing you just said because you said that what you were doing before was importing your modern American view of life into the Bible, which we're all guilty of. We all have a tendency to do that. And so I'm glad we're going to talk today about 
the subject we are going to talk about, which is interpreting the Bible rightly. And so we are going to get into some of the verses that are uh, misunderstood and misused a lot, may, and not even necessarily intentionally. Um, but but I want to take a few minutes before we get into the actual verses and talk about what it actually means to interpret the Bible, to read the Bible the way we're supposed to read the Bible. And I will be the first one to admit that some of the verses that are on our list for today <laughs> are verses that I have misinterpreted for my whole life, some of them. Um, there, and I'll when we get to them, I'll, I'll sort of out myself and say, you know, this this was one that I held wrongly, and it was really hard for me to let go of those interpretations when I really started studying the the um, the art of hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, and uh, and I realized I have not been using this verse properly, and then having to submit myself to what it really means rather than what I wanted it to mean sometimes mm-hmm. took years. And yeah. so um, I, I just want to say that because I don't want anybody to listen thinking that we're just coming on here to ruin your day. You know? um, <laughs> yeah. this, the yeah. heart of this is that we love scripture and we love God and we, we want all of us, ourselves included, to read his word rightly. So we're going to talk about what that means, but let's start with, um, you know, your website is exegesus, but you spell that with a J-E-S-U-S, which is a play on words because the word you're referencing is the word exegesis spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. So why don't we start with exegesis? What is exegesis and what is, how does that even apply to the average Christian? Yeah, I actually created the website thinking I was very clever. Then I started to realize that no one had any idea what the word I was playing on really meant. Um, and I had, I've since then I've had to explain myself just about every time I talk because um, everyone well, seems to read it. that. I... <laughs> yeah, everyone reads it like, "What do you mean, ex Jesus? You know, you what does that mean?" So, I, so I have to explain that. But um, yeah, ex Jesus is, and my website's a play on words. Obviously, uh, the term ex Jesus, the formal term, simply means um, to draw out from. So when it's applied to any book, really, but when we apply it to scripture, it's the idea that the meaning and the interpretation of a, of a passage or a section is found in the writing. Um, so it's not it, – there, there are some schools of thought that try to say that the meaning or the interpretation is in the hands of the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree with that. I believe that that doesn't work in a lot of ways uh, philosophically, but that's beside the point. But what the term exegesis means is that the interpretation and the meaning is found by the author. So it's in the book. It's in the text itself. So it's being communicated to us, and our job is to properly draw it out. Um, so that the idea is again that it would prevent us from misusing it or reading into it, kind of like the, the example we just gave of my thinking in modern terms and trying to make that apply to the life of the of Jesus and the apostles. Now the website is a play on words because of what Jesus tells his disciples, and actually something he says to the Pharisees in the Gospels that they search the scriptures because they think in them they have eternal life, but those scriptures teach of me or they point to me. So Jesus is telling you know the Pharisees that. The scriptures talk about him. He's the message. Yeah. So I play. I played that off the words uh, that exegesis really means that what the message I'm drawing out of scripture is Jesus. So that's, it's just kind of a, good a play because there. I think a lot of Christians, <laughs> myself included, in the past, have kind of approached the Bible thinking it's about us. You know, yeah. I'm I'm going to read this because God, this is this is about me and, the same and what thing for I mean, you know, yeah. And so, um, and, and it's interesting when you said, you know, the def- exegesis being what's depending on what the author is communicating mm-hmm. it's in the book. Cause if, if the meaning is 
in the hands of the reader or the interpreter, then it's all relative, right? Yeah, I can exactly. make a verse say whatever I want it to say, mm-hmm. and you could make a verse say whatever you want to say. Yeah. And I think, isn't this, isn't that kind of what Karl Barth was saying uh, a little bit, where he would say that the the Bible contains the word of God, mm-hmm. meaning that it, it in some way, when you read it, it will come alive and the message will be apparent in some way. Um, but you're saying that's not the right way to read it. Um, well, I, yeah, I should probably clarify a little bit. Yeah, I think Barth is is right in a sense because, yeah, the, the message, and we should specify, if we're talking about the message of the Word of God as God is revealing it to the reader, if the, that's kind of contingent on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to discount that, that, you know, that a Christian in, uh, the, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit will see the, the spiritual message that's being in, uh, conveyed. And uh, that's that's part of the communication between God's Word and the believer. Um, but even without that, there are you can still read it as an unbeliever and see the meaning in a lot of ways. Um, I think there's a lot that can be that could be drawn from that. So mm-hmm. I think Barth's not wrong. Barth just uh, Barth was very very strong in emphasizing the spiritual aspect of things. So mm-hmm. I don't think he's wrong. I just think there's there's extremes on both ends that we have to be very cautious of because if we're if we're taking it to the extent of saying that I as the reader because uh, have the power of the interpretation, mm-hmm. then again it becomes very subjective. Mm-hmm. And there is a difference. I probably should specify at the outset because you know some people might uh, misunderstand some of what we say here. Is that I'm not talking about the way you apply it. Mm-hmm. Application and interpretation are two different things. Mm-hmm. So the, a good good way of remembering it is that Scripture has a singular interpretation, but many applications. Mm. That's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. So when when Paul might talk about you know being content in all circumstances. His interpretation—he's in prison, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So he has a very specific thing that he's talking about, and he's suffering. So that his interpretation is the circumstances he's in. We're not all in prison, so we don't have to be in prison to apply that properly. Mm. But we, we all have times in our life where we are discontent. Yeah. You know, we all have times in our life where we wish things were better, or maybe we we are financially hampered or something like that. And so this this verse is now applying to our life. Because the circumstances, while not exactly the same, are still uh, circumstances in want or in need. So, yeah, so you have a difference between interpreting and applying. So sometimes when I have this discussion with people, um, they can get offended. Um, and mm. it's because usually because I've not been very clear in what I'm trying to say. Uh, and that's because they're thinking what I'm saying is this verse can't apply to them anymore. And that's mm. really not what I'm saying. I'm simply right. saying that if we want to rightly divide the word of truth— like Paul tells Timothy, then it starts with knowing the interpretation of the passage and then seeing how this applies. Not not mm-hmm. does it apply, but how does it apply to my life? That's good. Um, that's really and good. And that, that's, yeah, that's an important distinction. Yeah. And I, and I brought up Bart because some people that I know have taken that phrase that the Bible contains the word of God to mean that the Bible in and of itself is not the Word of God, but once you get the message out of it, that becomes the Word of God to you. And, uh, you know, that that may not be what he meant, but I think there that can be a misunderstanding with some Christians yeah. and then they see the Bible that way. So let's, uh, we, we just defined exegesis, which, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense. You're wanting to know what the book is communicating, what the author meant. What is eisegesis? Okay, and it's actually the easiest way to, to even mentally remember what these means comes from the two the two letters in exegesis in the beginning and the three letters in eisegesis. So exegesis is E-X-E-G, 
E-S-I-S. Uh, Greek for out of. Mm. Okay, so out of. Uh, eisegesis begins with three letters, E-I-S, which is Greek for into. So among other things, but into is, is one of the most direct translations. So if exegesis is drawing a message out of the scripture, eisegesis is placing your message into the scripture. Mm. So it's simply the reverse. It's what we talked about. We want to try to be careful of is reading our our present context or social environment into what we're reading uh, in scripture. Maybe reading what we want it to say because mm. that's that's really just we really want this message to be about us or about this particular mm. thing that we're making. So we're going to make scripture say that. Um, I think a good example, while very touchy subject, is that whole the whole issue of slavery. Um, mm. It's very easy for us to want to read. Uh, American slavery into the right. message of the Bible, and of course, well, you know, we can have long discussions about that. They weren't they weren't comparable in the same way. So um, that is a that is an area where a lot of us struggle with not reading what we know as a reality into what the Bible is talking about, especially for the time frames in which it's discussing it. So. Right. And I, I've uh, looked into this quite a bit, too, and I have a blog post on this about slavery in the Old Testament, because especially even in the Old Testament, uh, when the word slave is used, it, it, there were, I mean, slaves had certain things that they were um, like, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Like they had certain rights. They, yeah. they were, they would serve for seven years. And it was really more like a, what's called a bond servant, where they would serve mm-hmm. in a household and be released after seven years with flocks and grain and wine. And, um, and the, the whole point of it was that they could work their way up and out of poverty. And yeah. so when we see the word slave in the Old Testament and we see God saying, you know, this, this is okay, or, you know, or, or treat your slaves like this. And we're going, mm-hmm. what? And then we picture yeah. <laughs> what happened here in America and we're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But yeah. it, it yeah. really wasn't, it, it was voluntary as well back then. It was, in fact, kidnapping was forbidden and punishable mm-hmm. by death in the Old Testament law. So yeah, that's a that's a really good point about reading. And I always think of I said Jesus like I said Jesus, yeah. I, Very me, good. I'm reading myself into it. And then I heard a new one this week, <laughs> which is not a Greek term, I'm pretty sure, but it's, have you heard of nurse? said Jesus. <laughs> I like that. No, that's good. That's that probably more of a Latin term. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Well, that, yeah, that is really helpful. So that's, that's a good start. And, um, so another thing to kind of point out is that what we're not doing here today is trying to tell everybody how to interpret every single verse of the Bible, because there are even verses that Clark and I don't in, totally agree on as far as the interpretation goes. So we're not trying to solve like the problem of free will versus God's sovereignty today or the age of the earth or anything like that. But what we're trying to focus on are just plain bad interpretations, interpretations that really just, there's no case to be made that that is what the scripture is trying to say. And uh, so knowing now the difference between exegesis and eisegesis, when believers, your average Joe Christian opens up their Bible. Let's start with the Old Testament. What what are some things to keep in mind when you're reading, let's say, the Old Testament? Okay. Um, yeah, and I, just in because I'm, I'm more, I guess as I get older, I'm more and more aware of, uh, of concern for the people that we talk to and that I talk to about this subject, because this is something that people hold very near and dear to their heart. Um, everybody has a life first yeah. and things like that that they, they hold dear. My and I, I think in our desire, Lisa's desire and my desire, is not to hammer on people and their life verses. But my desire for everyone, every believer, is to have the tools 
to understand God's word rightly. Yeah. Um, so it comes from a place of love. It doesn't come from a place of condemnation. Uh, um, you know, I, if a verse has helped you through some hard times and for some reason we're going to talk about that and you think I don't want you to take it away from me saying that verse didn't do anything for you. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Good. My whole goal is is primarily just to train up the church to read God's word in the way it was intended, and it will continue to have impact in your life. So it's uh, that's that's where this comes from, and I just I hope that comes across in the way we talk because, like I said, we we've all been guilty of that. I was guilty of some really bad interpretation many years early years in my yeah, Christian life, and right. it, it comes down to submission. You know, I've submitted myself to God's word in a lot of ways, theologically as well as um, just doctrinally. And it's because even though I don't like what it says, and I will admit that there are some places in Scripture I really don't like what it says. But I have to accept that if this is what God says, this is what God says. And that's not for me to argue anymore. Um, so it comes down to do we do we hold on to a, a bad interpretation because we like it or do we try to allow ourselves to submit to God's word and say, OK, how do I use this rightly? So that's that's kind of where I come from on this. Um, and as far yeah, because somewhere somebody's listening to this who has one of these verses tattooed on their body somewhere. <laughs> Probably yes. <You> know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't ever tattoo a Bible verse on you. It's just bad luck. I'll just say that right now. <laughs> yeah. That's in the Bible, right? Yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. In the Old Testament, actually, which is a nice segue. So <laughs> that's um, true, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I think handling the Old Testament is actually a very very challenging topic for a lot of Christians. What do we do with it? Um, and some there's a big debate. Do we read back to front or front to back? And what that means is, do we do we read the Old Testament um, as the Old Testament, or do we understand it from the New Testament backwards? And I would say that I am kind of a proponent of, of back to front in a certain way, that if Jesus is the message of Scripture, that is the message that he taught, that all of the Old Testament pointed toward him, um, and that this is the message of Paul and the apostles, that the Old Testament foreshadowed what they were living in, then the elements of the New Testament teaching of Christ should inform how we understand the Old Testament. Um, so a lot of those things, one of the good questions that we can ask about a lot of passages is, how does this point me to Christ? You know, so then that's a, that's a good Christian way of starting, what, of looking at it. how does this point me to Christ? But beyond that, uh, just some simple rules that we would follow in both Testaments. Uh, what we, we talked about last time was uh, simple hermeneutics, which just means, you know, interpret, <laughs> uh, is what did it, trying to understand what it meant to the people that were being written to. You know, in the Old Testament, it's it's a it's a completely different culture than ours. You know, New Testament is too, but the Old Testament even more so, far far removed from us. Um, so it takes a little bit of work to try to understand. Okay, what were they going through? And sometimes we find that in the in the passage itself. Sometimes the chapter or the book will tell us that they are in slavery, or it will give us circumstances in which they are living. Other times it requires a little more work. Maybe we have to check a commentary. Um, maybe you have to, to find a, a good encyclopedia <laughs> you know, on mm -hmm. that time frame. Um, and so understanding what it meant to the people it was being written to is, is the start. Uh, looking at maybe the practical circumstances uh, that they're living in. And then kind of taking that meaning, okay, what did it mean to them then? And then how can that possibly apply to me now? What does that mean to me now, especially as a Christian? So we call that bridging the gap. And a lot of times, especially as, the old as far as the Old Testament is concerned, that will involve principle over specific detail. So a good, I, I'll, I'll just give you a good example that maybe can be challenging. Uh, in the Deuteronomic law, in Deuteronomy, 
you have this 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 discussion about building a railing around your roof so that your neighbor doesn't fall to his death. Now, I don't I I live in a two-story house with a pretty sloped roof, so I don't plan on having my neighbor on my roof. <laughs> so do I need to build a railing around my roof so that it doesn't fall to his death? I think it'd be better just not to have him go up there. Um Right, and that's where we we have to ask a question. Well, why is you know what do I do with that? And if you understand the context of the time, the meeting place in most uh, eastern homes, especially in Israel, was their flat roof. This is where they this is where they would be outside. It wasn't so much a front porch as it was a roof. Um, and so, to prevent people from falling to their deaths, it was a good uh, good custom and practice to look out for the welfare of your neighbor to build a type of railing or something that would keep them from stumbling off your roof. So what's the principle? Well, the principle is the very principle that Jesus taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. You care enough about your own life. You don't want to fall to your death on your roof. So you do something to protect yourself. Do the same for your neighbor. Um, so in a, in a way, we can take something like that. Um, and maybe it's an easy one, but that but we could take something like that and say, okay, how in the world does this point? And what does it point? How does it point to Christ? Well, right there in a way, maybe not directly, but Christ mirrors that same principle in his teaching. Um, so, yeah, so I think in the Old Testament, we ask those questions. What did it mean to them then? What can it mean to me now? And in what way does this point me to Christ? That's great. And a- another thing uh, that really helped me when I was reading through the Old Testament was when I learned that just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean that it's prescribing that behavior. So there's a lot of history in the Bible. We see the Israelites being very disobedient (laughs) and rotten at times. We see other nations being rotten. We see a lot of sin and immorality take place in the Old Testament, but that's when we have to look at at the verse and look at the context. Is, Is God prescribing that they're supposed to be doing that, or are they actually acting rebelliously against God? Because this can be a great misunderstanding. There's a, there's a particular verse where the one tribe of the Israelites goes and they want to go, it's, it says catch wives for themselves. (laughs) And so they go and they like kidnap these women or that's their plan. And, and I remember when I first read that, I was like, what? (laughs) But then you realize, no, God, that, that was not what God told them to do. That was not prescribing behavior that we should imitate. And I think think that's something a lot of people misunderstand when they're mm-hmm. reading uh, the Old Testament, is that it will describe something that is is not something we're supposed to, to emulate, but we're actually supposed to look at the outcome of what happened mm-hmm. because of their sin and go, oh, I don't want to do that because look at that horrible thing that happened because they were so rebellious and sinful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah um, very, that's a very good point. Yeah, we need to, especially in the Old Testament, because New Testament's quite a bit different in the fact that there's very little that you could say is, is specific history. You know, you have history in right, the, right. the Gospels, history in the Book of Acts, but that's about where it ends, and then then it's all doctrinal teaching. But in the Old Testament, there's a lot of history. Um, and so, yeah, understanding that just because something ap- happens or people act in a certain way is not the same as God telling them that this is okay. So the Bible does not always approve of what it contains, Uh Ethically, it's just it's letting you know this is this is here. This is what they did. Um, And in many cases, you see God's perspective in the way it's narrated of what they did. But, uh, yeah, don't don't assume because it's described, described that it is also prescribed. And there's a lot of confusion these days um, about the certain commands that are in the Old Testament and how those apply to modern Christians. When Mm. you read things like 
we shouldn't, they, sh- you know, they were commanded to not eat certain things, shellfish, yeah, shellfish. when <laughs> they were commanded to not mix fabrics in their clothes. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, had to wash their hands a certain way. Only certain people could go in certain places. And there was all of these rules. And, mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago, uh, a progressive writer, Rachel Held Evans did this book where she called a year of biblical womanhood. So she was going to obey every command in the Bible. And, uh, the thing that was so sad really about that is that her whole premise was wrong because, uh, uh, she wasn't really understanding how to apply the commands of the Old Testament to the com- the commands of the New Testament. So why don't let's unpack that a little bit um, just as we wrap up this this first episode. What how, should we keep in mind when we read about those commands? You know, because because mm-hmm. a lot of times Christians, especially you know conservative Christians, will be accused of being inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. you are against say same-sex marriage, but you mix fabric in your clothes or you eat shellfish. Right. So let's let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up um, with uh, Rachel Held Evans because I, I don't I can't say that she stole the idea because I don't think she necessarily did, but there was actually a book prior to hers written by a man uh, who oh. did the same thing. It was a Jewish man said it's called A Year of Living Biblically, and they turned it into a uh, – recently they turned it into a sitcom that I don't think has – could, it might have been canceled, but yeah. And, oh, I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't see the show, but I saw the ad for it. Yeah, and actually, it's fantastic. It's a very interesting book. Um, so, if you want to read an interesting book, a year living biblically is an interesting book um, from a secularist perspective. But it's a mis- It's again, it's a misnomer because well, they're actually in the, a year living in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, and they're they're not concluding the entire message of, of the Bible. So there is a bit right. of a cha- bit of a mistake in the, in saying, oh, well, this is living biblically. Well, not necessarily. You're living according to Old Testament law, which is right. not the whole story. Um, but yeah, that, but the question really comes down to what do Christians do with that claim that they're being uh, hypocrites? And it all, and again, just like everything else it did, a lot of it comes back, you know, it comes back to understanding what did Christ do when he says that I had not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And in so doing, uh, in his his living a sinless life, in his dying a sinless death, his sacrifice for all mankind, he was going through the steps required of the Old Testament law. And there's a lot of great work that's been done on how Jesus's life was representative of the real Israel, of the whole nation, what they were supposed to do, encapsulated into one man. And into Jesus. So he did everything. He was obedient through the wilderness, through suffering and all these different things in all the places that Israel failed. He did everything and then acted as the sacrifice. So in in doing that, he took all these prescriptions of the law upon himself. So what does that mean? How much of the law? Does it mean all the things, every every part of the law? Does it mean parts of the law? And we we have in Christian circles, we have a tendency to want to say, well, the ceremonial law and there's civil law, and there's moral law, and all these things do exist. And the question we have to ask is, well, what remains, what doesn't? And when we look at the teachings of Jesus, he doesn't make anything easier. He actually makes it harder. But what he does is he, and rather than saying specific guidelines, which I think a lot of us would love it if he had just made, okay, so here's the ones you need to keep, do these. (laughs) We We would have much rather preferred that. But instead of doing that, he points to the fact that this is the this is a new covenant that's on in your heart, that the spirit that will be given to you is going to communicate to you the law. 
So it's something where, we, in fact, the very the very thing uh, Paul would later rail against is that the moment you start applying specific rules, you've you've done exactly what the Spirit is trying to prevent you from doing. It is mm. it's communicating directly God's law to you, and which is exactly what Jeremiah prophesies that from from God that the new covenant will be written on your heart. That no one will have to be told, this is how you know the Lord, because you will all know the Lord. Um, so this was all the things that were prophesied. So practically speaking, we come back to the law, and we look at these things, and we say, okay, there's nothing in the New Testament that says anything about shellfish. Outside of the fact that, you know, Peter had a vision that showed all animals clean, <laughs> you know, which really only yeah. meant that Gentiles would be brought into the into the church. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so what do you do with that? Well— Again, we go back to our principles. What did it mean to them then? Why were they having to have these laws? And how does that apply to us now? Uh, so you look at that. Let's let's just use shellfish and, and the, the clothing one. That's always one that comes up. So shellfish, not a very hygienic food at the time. You know, in a practical sense, mm-hmm. it carried disease. They did, we, didn't, we didn't, you know, wash lobster in the same way then as you might today. People can die from these things. Um, and it, 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 the principle of eating specific food to keep yourself holy or healthy because you are looking at your body as a, as a temple, as something that honors God, is still the principle in Paul when he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of God? Um, doesn't mean you can't eat shellfish. No, because what you're doing is now you're applying that specific law to a time, from a time frame that you're not in. But what it does mean is you need to be aware, okay, what things am I bringing into my body that are not honoring to God? And that can be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. It depends on your mm-hmm. your lifestyle. It depends on all these other, you know, and people have fought wars over in church over smoking and everything else. And that the point mm-hmm. being, though, keeping it at the principal level is is one step. The clothing thing is another very interesting concept because it actually is nestled in the middle of all these other passages about not being mixed with other communities. And so when you allow that to kind of inform what you're reading, you can identify that, yes, he wanted them to do a specific thing about these fibers. But it wasn't just because one fiber, mixing fibers was evil. It was still trying to convey this greater truth. You're not to be mixing with the culture around you. And down to the very clothing was a reminder of that. Um, And so, of course, that principle, again, we find it in Paul, do not be yoked to an unbeliever, especially in the context of marriage, uh, specifically in the context of marriage there. But, you know, those principles still remain. And so we we take that that hermeneutical process and we say, okay, what did it mean to them? Is there any way this means anything to me? And what did this do to point me to Christ? And, of course— all these things point us to Christ because this is this is the very th- this is still the same message that he preached. Um, we just do not have the the specific application of the law because that time period is past. And I hope that's clear enough. I know there's a lot of what yeah, ifs that can no, come from that, but that's in general. No, that's terms. a that's a really good place <laughs> to start. And I think that a lot of people aren't willing really to engage with the text at such a level to really try to you know pick it apart and understand it like that. And so it, it's it's. Um, it's something we do need to do. And I think one great thing you said that's just a really good place to start for Christians, knowing which things apply and which don't, or, you know, of course, the principles are there. And we learn about the nature and the character of God from the Old Testament. We learn how much he hates sin. We learn 
um, just his mercy. I mean, the Old Testament, people think the Old Testament doesn't have any mercy. Yeah, no, it's, it's filled, filled with, with mercy. mercy. I mean, yeah. it, he's he waited something like 400 years before the Canaanite destruction, giving them prophets and chances to repent. And yeah. uh, God's mercy is very evident in the Old Testament if you're willing to look for it. Um, but a good thing, you know, place to start for Christians is what you said. Is it repeated in the New Testament? Yeah. And that's that's a, a, as far as the commands actually go, because that's a, a really great place to start, because sometimes the um, accusation is, like I said before, you have these views on sexuality, mm-hmm. but you eat shellfish. <laughs> well, the shellfish command isn't repeated in the New Testament, but the... Uh, Everything regarding biblical sexuality is repeated by Jesus and Paul. And so um, they're just not even the same thing and not Mm -hmm. comparable. And so uh, that's just a good place to start is look at what was repeated in the New Testament. And it's also an interesting point, too, that when it comes to things, you know, when we call it the ceremonial law and the, the purity laws and all of that stuff, none of that was really applied to the surrounding nations. It was the, mm-hmm. the morale, the morality part of yeah. God's, you know, the, what's reflected of God's nature and character being what we would call morality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's how we even know what is good is, is whatever God's character is, is how we're going to define yeah. what is good. And that's what the surrounding nations were held accountable for. Yeah. Uh, that's what prophets were sent to say, repent for. And so um, that's, that's just a good indicator that that's more universally applied, the morality part of the law, than mm-hmm. it wasn't just for Israel. Like God didn't require the Amalekites to wash their hands in a ceremonial way. <laughs> and so it was, yeah. but, but he did want them to repent of their moral sins. And so that's just another yeah. kind of little key thing to think about uh, as you read the Old Testament. So very good. Yeah. Uh, well, good. So next time, we're going to talk about some really specific <laughs> verses, and hopefully we won't get anybody too upset with us. <laughs> but um, we, we're going to talk about some big ones. We, we've talked about some so far, and we've been kind of collecting some since then. So we'll, we'll tackle those next time. And Clark, thanks for being on today. Thanks for having me. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my post by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. 
visit gcu.edu.